from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. The war in Ukraine is also a war of words, a fight on the battlefield for ideas and truth. We speak to journalist John Jeter. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, there's almost nothing that you can see on, certainly on the cable networks, mainstream uh, networks, NBC, CBS and the like. Almost nothing is true. And thanks to independent media voices, the hypocrisy of the U.S. and NATO, which have collectively invaded and destroyed entire countries with people of color throughout the globe, is laid bare. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. All that and more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Now, each day, danger and dangerous rhetoric from the war in Ukraine ratchets up higher and higher. On Thursday, Ukraine reported that a Russian missile hit the Zaporozhskaya nuclear plant, the largest nuclear plant in Europe, and set it on fire and used the incident to continue the call for other countries to intervene directly in its war with Russia. But that nuclear plant report was disputed by Russia, who accused Kiev or saboteurs or mercenaries over which Kiev has lost control of creating a provocation. The International Atomic Energy Agency confirmed that there was no radiation release as a result of the incident. The safety systems of six reactors at the plant were not affected by the fire. Hundreds of soldiers and at least 200 civilians have been killed in the fighting. In addition to attacks by Russia, there are reports of continued shelling by Kiev on the ethnic Russian Donbass region in eastern Ukraine. Human rights agencies report that one million Ukrainians have fled the country, while African students and other residents took to social media to document incidents of racial discrimination when they said Africans, including women and children, were barred from trains and buses in the sub-freezing temperatures and told that the transportation was only for Ukrainians. But in the start of the second week of this military operation in Ukraine, with mounting sanctions against Russia, Russian people, Russian banks and businesses, Russian athletes, there's also a war by the U.S. and all of Europe to galvanize the strength they still hold in economic, social and corporate media capital. As for Russia's part, they say that they are creating a security guarantee by military force that they could not get after months of effort at diplomacy. More on Ukraine later in the show with John Jeter. Meanwhile, as the attention of news organizations was trained on Ukraine, here in Washington, the Senate killed legislation, the Women's Health Protection Act, which would have created a federal protection for abortion and would have nullified laws passed in Texas and Mississippi that make terminating a pregnancy all but impossible. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia joined Republicans to filibuster the bill. Also here in D.C., Samaria Rice, mother of Tamir Rice, who was slain by Cleveland police in 2014, participated in a discussion on ways to energize the movement for Black lives. Chantel James has more. Just a few days before the State of the Union address in which Biden affirmed that his support for police funding is greater than ever, 
Claudia Jones School for Political Education partnered with People's World and the African-American Equality Commission of the CPUSA for a special forum titled Democracy Demands Ending Racist Police Violence. It featured speakers Frank Chapman, Executive Director of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, Molly Nagin, co-lead organizer of Tamir's Campaign for Justice, Samaria Rice, CEO and founder of the Tamir Rice Foundation, and Mike Madden, St. Paul, Minnesota Federation of Labor. They stressed the danger police pose to black and brown communities and offered alternatives to policing as we now know it. Samaria Rice talked about unsuccessful attempts at police reform and what needs to happen. We have so many police departments in the country, let let alone in the state of Ohio, it's probably over 850 something police departments. Somebody tell me why do one state have so many police departments, number one. Where I'm at in my life right now is I'm still um, trying to have a conversation with Christian Clark, which she's the DOJ, which at this point, I'm asking her to give me details of why they cannot indict Timothy Loman and Frank Brambeck for willful intent. The statute was 242. So she tells me, we need a better statue. We need a stronger statue. And my attorney is like, well, why can't you just challenge the statue? We have a, we have a letter from prestigious lawyers in the country, Brian Stevens and also Angela Davis is on the letter as well, saying that you can charge him. So she is a coward at the end of the day. And I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I don't, I don't have time. You cannot tell me that those two officers should not be in jail. So now it's just like I'm thinking of other ways and hopefully I can get me a Supreme Court lawyer to challenge this. And again, my attorney explained a few things to me talking about Christian Clark should have been the one to take this to the Supreme Court. At the end of the day, America is built off of genocide, blood, sweat and tears on American citizens, starting with black and brown folks. At the end of the day, the white supremacy is real, and we are very much aware of it. To me, I believe all of this needs to be abolished. To me, at the end of the day, I think it needs to be a people government. If Congress is not going to help, if the Republican Party is not going to help, the Democratic Party is not going to help, who is going to make a law saying cease fire on black and brown folks, black and brown people? Who's going to make that law? It's simple as that. So at the end of the day, when it comes to white supremacy in this country, we know who we're dealing with. We know exactly what this is. Rice's son, Tamir Rice, killed by an officer for holding a toy gun in 2014, is one of the youngest documented police killings in the country. For On the Ground, this is Chantal James. D.C. public school substitute teachers 
are in the seventh week of protests, demanding more than an announced $5 an hour raise, as well as sick leave, professional development, and other benefits. Substitute teachers in D.C. are currently making $120 a day, which in D.C.'s economy is not a living wage, they say. Although substitutes are required to have at least a bachelor's degree and teaching skills before they are hired, they are not compensated accordingly, organizers say, and they have not gotten a raise since 2008, 14 years without a cost of living increase. On the grounds, Lydia Curtis, who is also a teacher and an activist in the movement, spoke to a fellow teacher at the February 28th rally. Okay, so I'm here with Susan at the weekly substitute teacher picket and rally in front of the district building in Washington, D.C. So Susan, tell me, I see that you're in a cast, your leg is, your, your ankle or something is broken, and yet you're here, you've been walking this picket line now, back and forth for quite a while. Why are you here? Well, I think it's, it's very important. I live on Capitol Hill. I substituted at some elementary schools here. And I know the demand for, for substitute teachers is great in this city. I mean, you could work every day. Um, yeah, I had, I had foot surgery, about a butt hip surgery about a month and a half ago. But I still think it's important that I be here and I be with the group of people that want to have justice. And minimum wage is, what, $15 in D.C. Mm-hmm. I have a master's degree. I love substitute teaching, yet we really deserve much more money. Much more than that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, what was what was it like for you? What was your experience like substituting? Well, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't think we got sometimes the respect we should have when we were in there. But um, as I say, we, we could, you're, you're in high demand and that we should have respect for that. Did you work during the pandemic? No, I did not. Okay. I did not. Okay. Okay. But, Are you back now? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I see one of the signs that said, talks about respect as one of the issues. Right. Higher wages, respect. And I think I saw a sign about professional development. And um, are there any other issues for you? I don't believe so. I just feel it's something that we as professionals we all have to have four-year degrees some of us have masters some of us have higher than higher than more than that Mm -hmm. and it's just doesn't make sense that we're paid basically minimum wage thank you so much the teachers say that more public pressure from community groups unions and labor activists is needed to get respect and equity which they say would be demonstrated by paying teachers a salary that they can live on and paid sick leave The organization Washington Substitute Teachers United is organizing these actions. The next one is scheduled for March 7th from 8.30 to 9.30 a.m. at the District Building 1350 Pennsylvania Avenue in Northwest D.C. For more information, email masita at aol.com. That's M-A-C-E-D-A at aol.com. M-A-C-E-D-A at aol.com. In culture and media, Russian news organizations RT and Sputnik are now banned in EU countries. Apple and Google are removing the publication's apps from their respective app stores. The International Olympic Committee has banned Russian and Belarusian athletes from the Beijing Paralympics, but Russia is heading to court to challenge that decision. Russia has also been banned from the 2022 Eurovision Song Contest. 
and Russian top tennis stars have been subjected to harassment and required to give on-camera statements about the war, something never required of American athletes during 20 years of invasion of Afghanistan or Iraq. Such interviews have never been required of Israeli athletes who live in an apartheid state. Palestinian hip-hop artist Loki posted on Instagram how in 2019 Eurovision took place on seized Palestinian land where there was once a Palestinian village of al-Sheikh Muwanis. He also added that in the 2014 bombing of Gaza that killed 2,300 people, quote, not only did Google not ban any IDF YouTube channels, it actually allowed a game called Bomb Gaza to be sold from Google Play. Other Gaza-inspired games available were Gaza Assault, Code Red, and Iron Dome. More on the Ukraine war and double standards later in the show. And finally, the public cultural tribute in honor of WPFW's late news director, Askia Muhammad, is Saturday, March 5th, 4 to 7 p.m. at Busboys and Poets in the Angela Davis Room. That's 450 K Street, Northwest D.C. In addition to the live event, WPFW and WPFWFM.org will broadcast the tribute from 4 to 7 p.m., for those that may be unable to attend. The tribute will consist of poetry, music, and remembrances of Muhammad. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. is Peter Brooks. He's a Native American activist under the historic Piscataway chiefdom. He's the grandson of the great Cab Calloway. That's why I I wanted to introduce him. A musician from the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s and 30s who influenced people like Nat King Cole, Michael Jackson, and Bob Marley. His great-grandfather was a president of the United Mutual Brotherhood of Liberty in Baltimore, which founded which was founded in the 1870s and was one of the first civil rights groups ever founded in America. Peter commits himself to the preservation, celebration, and continuation of indigenous culture and civilization in America. He can be found on Insight Timer, where he leads guided meditations and is working on a book with his mom entitled, More Than a Daughter. Peter. From the moment we were first exposed, the Powhatan in Jamestown, the Wampanoag of Massachusetts, Kittimacund of the Piscataway here in Maryland, indigenous people have always resisted and struggled against capitalism and the ways of material people. These people who think that life is just about what you can see and touch, 
They are fundamentally different from us because first and foremost, we are a spiritual people. Before 1634 and the founding of Maryland, all this land was governed by the great law of peace. It reflected our spirituality. And today, everyone all over the world, as I speak, is upset because Russia invaded the Ukraine. Naked aggression against the sovereign people. Well, in 1634, they did the exact same thing to my people right here where you stand. True. Over and over again, nation after nation. Why? Because we are governed by the great law of peace. We are spiritual people, we're not material. Many great men have died as martyrs. People whose names will never be forgotten. Pontiac, Tecumseh, Sitting Bull, Chief Joseph, Osceola, Geronimo, Dennis Banks, Russell Means, and now Leonard Peltier. You live in an era when you can be a part of American Indian history. Just as you cannot stand with those great men, but now you can stand with this great man. They tell me this is the Department of Justice. But I don't believe it because Leonard Peltier has never known justice in America for 46 years. So it's up to you how this history is going to play out. He is America's Nelson Mandela. And if the U.S. Congress can give a gold medal to Nelson Mandela, then why can't you free Leonard Peltier here on your home homeland while he is suffering from COVID-19? How is this story going to end? In South Africa, the people had the decency to let Nelson Mandela go when he got to be an old man. America, where is your decency? You say this is a department of justice? We need a department of decency. Where is your common sense? You may not agree with me, but freeing Leonard Peltier is the only decent thing you can do after stealing all the land, interrupting our trajectory into the future, 
breaking all the treaties, destroying our way of life, our culture, and our history is the only decent thing you can do. When is enough enough? How much more blood do you need? How long will it be until you wake up? Ladies and gentlemen, the sky, the mountains, and the rivers all tell our stories. And so, I'm asking all of you who can hear my voice, how is this story going to end? It's up to you, right now. And I'm telling you, you. If you don't free Leonard Peltier, then all that is around you, in all the directions where you stand, everything you see and have touched will remember when you return into the earth. And so, I'm asking you now, give clemency to Leonard Peltier. Free Leonard Peltier! Free Mumia Abu-Jamal! Free Julian Assange! I am tired of hearing about it! This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, there is so much to say about an update on the actual fighting in Ukraine, which has already killed hundreds of soldiers and at least 200 civilians, according to reports released on Thursday. But in the start of the second week of this military operation in Ukraine and a mountain of sanctions against Russia, Russian people, Russian banks and businesses, Russian athletes, We're also witnessing a war by the U.S. and all of Europe to galvanize the remaining strength they hold in economic, social, and corporate media capital to respond in anger and in hate at their chief military rival, Russia, doing what they pushed Russia to do, and that is create a security guarantee by military force that they could not get after months of negotiating. Here to help us break down the overwhelming information operation, which feels more and more like a a massive PSYOP, is John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, two-time Pillar finalist and author of Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleece Working People. He joins us from Limon, Costa Rica. Welcome back to the show, John. Always a pleasure, Esther. And I apologize. I should have save some of my commentary for the first question for you, because it does feel like this psyop for me. And I'm thinking of listening to the editor of Electronic Intifada, Ali Abalima, this week, and he summed it up 
really well. And he said that the climate right now reminds him so much of after 9-11, when we know that there was a, a real political and social hysteria, you know, whipped up by the corporate media, you know, after those attacks on September 11th, 2001. But why don't you give me your top line thoughts about the media coverage that you've seen this week and not only about the war, but all the, I guess, the external theater of, of war, the what's yeah. happening here and Europe and around the well, world. Let me say, I think both your description of what we're seeing as a PSYOPs campaign and Abumina's comparison to 9-11 are both spot on. I think that both are exactly right. So let's start with, with your identification of this as a PSYOPs campaign. I think we have made the argument here on your show that one of the main objectives, if not the main objective of Western media writ large and the United States media especially, is to foment violence and to dissipate working class solidarity. And we can really see that in Ukraine, which really, I have to say, Esther, and this just came to me last night, but I, in all my life, you know, I'm 57, I've been working in media really since 1986. And I've never seen, I've never seen such a media, I guess I, I want to say failure, but of course it's not a failure because they're doing exactly what they want to do, but a misrepresentation on this scale, exceeding even what we saw during 9-11. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, there's almost nothing that you can see on, certainly on the cable networks, mainstream uh, networks, NBC, CBS and the like. Almost nothing is true. I mean, I've, I've been listening sort of intently uh, to talk about this in a useful way. And I, I can't recall anything I've heard that actually characterizes this or contextualizes what's going on in Ukraine in a way that will help someone understand it who's not been paying attention. And I think it really speaks to the desperation of the United States right now, right? They are desperate. They're, we're facing multiple economic and political crises at home uh, in the United States. And this is almost, as my African friends like to say, uh, the last kicks of a dying horse. And so this is different, right? Even by United States standards, this is different. And what's the Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times. I think we're living in very, very interesting times. Well, you know that the journalists at RT and uh, Sputnik have been removed, deplatformed. I think in the EU, Apple has removed their app, like from the App Store. Apple also is not selling their products in Russia anymore. YouTube has demonetized the stations, uh, meaning that they can no longer, you know, get revenue from mm -hmm. advertising or whatever. There have been other removals, I think, on social media. I don't have the whole list of removals, mm -hmm. but, but that is a, affecting uh, media. But when you were talking, what I was thinking about was the coverage of Iraq. That's when I thought I had never seen anything like this. And, and now they've upped it quite yes. a bit with uh, the coverage of what's happening in Ukraine. And when you really think about the, the history of media coverage of U.S. wars, we can only recognize what we have seen in our lifetime as adults or people who are old enough to rec really recognize what we're, we're seeing. 
But I'm sure that some of the people who witnessed earlier wars, like, you know, the what the famous quote from Hearst, I guess, to the photographer mm. in right. In right. Cuba, okay, you supply right. the pictures, I'll supply, I'll supply the, the war. war right. Yeah. So there's a precedent for it, but with global communications, digital media, social media, 24-7 news, it's overwhelming. And I just have to call it a psyop. But anyway, moving on, uh, this week, I think that there were maybe some kind of cracks in this wall of uniformity that the U.S. and NATO have tried to create in terms of voice and who gets to speak about about the war and what it means. So I'm thinking about, in particular, the 25 countries that abstained in the United Nations, abstained from a vote uh, that would denounce Russia for this military operation in Ukraine. I can read a little bit from the a statement released by Cuba. I think of those 25 countries, I think they included the two largest countries, China and India. Some of what Cuba wrote um, uh, before that vote The U.S. determination to continue NATO's progressive expansion towards the Russian Federation borders has brought about a scenario with implications of unpredictable scope which could have been avoided. United States and NATO's military moves towards regions adjacent to the Russian Federation in recent months, preceded by the delivery of modern weapons to Ukraine, which together conform a military siege, are well known. It is impossible to make a rigorous and honest exam of the current situation in Ukraine without carefully assessing the Russian Federation just claims to the United States and NATO and the factors that have led to the use of force and non-observance of legal principles and international norms that Cuba strongly supports and are particularly for small countries an essential reference against hegemony, abuse of power, and injustice. Cuba champions the international law and is committed to the Charter of the United Nations. Cuba will always defend peace and oppose the use or threat to use force against any state. We deeply regret the loss of innocent civilian lives in Ukraine. The Cuban people have had and continue to have a very close relationship with the Ukrainian people. History will hold the United States accountable for the consequences of an increasingly offensive military doctrine outside NATO's borders, which threatens international peace, security, and stability. Okay, yeah. So anyway, that's part of the Cuba response. You know, one thing I think is important to say, I think, you know, there's a lot that has been left unsaid by the Western media. But I think the most important thing uh, if, I, if there was one thing I could identify that the American people should understand, right, that has not been said by uh, our media, it's that Putin has been, no matter what you think about Putin, and I, I'm fairly agnostic about Putin, right? I don't think he's any kind of role model necessarily, but uh, he is a very smart man, right? He's someone you have to reckon with. And the fact of the matter is he has been preparing for this moment for at least 12 years, right? He has understood the United States in game for at least 12 years, and he has been methodically planning for this. And so Russia has been bolstering its capacity to supply its own food. So the sanctions against Russia, that will mitigate the sanctions against Russia because they don't have to buy food. They produce their own, right? He's been bolstering their gold reserves in Russia. So again, the sanctions, not nearly as dramatic because they have a trade surplus. They don't have to buy so much stuff from abroad. 
Of course, he's re, he sort of remade their military to make it very nimble and capable of fighting in these sort of urban environments. And he's been strengthening the relationships between Russia and countries like Cuba, like China, especially the BRICS countries, you know, Brazil and South Africa. And what you're going to see, I do believe, we, we can't predict the future. But what I think we're going to see is a gigantic pivot towards China as more and more countries they might vote one way in the General Assembly at the United Nations, but in terms of their relationships, I think you're going to see, we're going to see a lot more countries in an international sphere gravitate towards China, that China-Russia axis as they understand the United States endgame, right? And NATO's endgame. Because here's what they know in the rest of the world that we don't understand in the United States. NATO shouldn't even exist right now. There's no, NATO was intended to thwart of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union has not existed in 30 years. Why does NATO even exist? And so I really do believe this is going, the blowback from this will be, I think, I anticipate, I expect, the blowback from what the United States has inculcated in their strategy towards Russia and Ukraine, the blowback I think will be as significant as any historical blowback we've seen in terms of Cold War policy, right? Because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to resume the Cold War, create an enemy to distract America from the fact that inflation is about to explode, right? If we don't have the same, uh, we don't have the access to oil, or if the supply of oil shrinks because of the sanctions against Russia, we're going to see the inflation that we've already seen, which is at historic levels, levels we haven't seen in 40 years. It's, you know, I, I would not be surprised to see double-digit inflation by this summer. I wouldn't be surprised at all. And they're trying to distract you from that fact. I don't think it's going to work. I think this is. I think we're seeing the beginning of the end of some of the most effective Western institutions like NATO. I think the United Nations is going to be very damaged by this. I think the Western media is going to be very damaged by this. And I think we're, we're starting to see those cracks become real fissures. So, you know, I want to get back to some of those issues that you're talking about, because there were also other kind of cracks in the kind of wall of of uniform coverage that they wanted to create of Ukraine. Largely through social media, people have been sharing all these accounts of African immigrants, immigrants from India, other people of color being treated in a really racist manner in Ukraine as they tried to flee, people not being allowed to board trains, not being allowed to board buses, or get it, being told to get to the back of the line when they tried to flee, and even women and children who were prioritized, supposedly, uh, the African women or women of color weren't prioritized, even with infant children in the freezing cold Ukraine winter. So that was very important to kind of break this wall of uh, rah-rah Ukraine and to realize where we are sending our tax dollars, all of us in this country, and what kind of country that we're supporting. Uh, And the uh, that kind of coverage, kind of breaking through the the sound barrier, the visual barrier of corporate media. Uh, the writer Alan McLeod, uh, he posted, uh, compiled some of the openly racist coverage in corporate media. And this clip includes the uh, Ukraine's deputy chief prosecutor. Then it goes to a pretty famous clip 
by now of Chris Degada of CBS News and then also a uh, uh, commentator at Al Jazeera. Me, I'm sorry. It's really emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. We're playing in the latest pictures of some of the refugees trying to get on trains or trying to get out of Ukraine. And, and what's compelling is just looking at them the way they're dressed. These are prosperous, I'm loath to use the expression, these are prosperous middle class people. These are not obviously refugees trying to get away from areas in the Middle East that are still in a big state of war. These are not people trying to get away from areas in North Africa. They look like any European family that you would live next door to. So that has really helped to, like I said before, to break this wall. And then finally, uh, before I go to the break, so people just starting to point out the hypocrisy, you know, the hypocrisy of U.S. empire, which has invaded countries well beyond its border, well beyond NATO's borders in the interest of so-called, you know, national security, uh, while, you know, murdering Gaddafi, destroying Libya, destroying Afghanistan, destroying Iraq, destroying Syria. And so uh, this is former National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice under George Bush, who was very much a part of the architect, who was part of the architecture team, I should say, of the Iraq war, the illegal Iraq war and invasion that left more than a million Iraqis dead. Some estimates said more than two million Iraqis dead. And here she is speaking on Fox News. Well, and I have argued that when you invade a sovereign nation, that is a war crime. <laughs> I mean, I think we're at, at, at just a real basic, basic point there. Well, um, I, 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 it is certainly against every principle of international law and international order. And that's why throwing the book at them now in terms of economic sanctions mm -hmm. and punishments is also a part of it. And I think the world is there. Uh, certainly NATO is there. He's, he's managed to unite NATO in ways that I didn't think I would ever see again after the end of the Cold War. Really? Yeah. yeah. So that is the height of hypocrisy. Basically, uh, Condoleezza Rice uh, making a statement that indicts herself, where she indicts herself as committing war crimes. But this is what we are able to present as independent media to be critical, to look empire back in the face and say, this is a lie. You are lying. This is history. We're not going to forget history. We're not going to sign up for this erasure of history and this revision of history that allows you to get on some moral high horse uh, at this critical moment, squaring off against the world's other nuclear power. Yeah, um, no, that's that's such a great point. And I, I just think I want to say very quickly, uh, it's such a great point. And it, the contradictions, you know, Condi Rice, of all people coming on the air to denounce preemptive war, when she was the architect of the preemptive war of the 21st century. Uh, it, it's so profound. And yet it sort of it reminds me of the Italian theorist Antonio Gramsci, the 
the you know we're in the interregnum the old is dying and the new cannot be born and you've got these people who are i mean they're all over the place you've got you've got these black people who are participating in this colonial enterprise you know the pentagon chief the ambassador to the united nations the congressional black caucus uh, you know, all these black people who are, I've never in my life seen so many black people who are saber rattling against Russia. Russia ain't never called me the N-word. Putin's never called me the N-word, right? Uh, he's not the reason we see all these black people being shot to death, strangled on video, and nobody going to prison for it. Why this woman murdered Dante Wright in cold blood. And I don't care what anybody says. She knew exactly what she was reaching for when she pulled her gun. You know, the, is he the reason? Is Putin the reason she only got... 16 months for the murder of this young man. I just think it's absurd. So with that, we're going to take a brief break and we're going to come back and look at more on the media with John Jeter. We'll be right back. Back when Eisenhower was the president, golf courses is where most of his time was spent. So I never really listened to what the president said because in general, I believed that the general was politically dead. But he always seemed to know when the muscles were about to be flexed. Because I remember him saying something, mumbling something about a military industrial complex. Americans no longer fight to keep their shores safe just to keep the jobs going in the arms-making workplace. And then they pretend to be gripped by some sort of political reflex. But all they're doing is paying dues to the military-industrial complex. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary. The military and the monetary get together whenever they think it's necessary. They turn our brothers and sisters into mercenaries. They are turning the planet to a cemetery. The military and the monetary use the media as an intermediary as they are determined to keep the citizens secondary. They make so many decisions. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam in conversation with our media critic, John Jeter. And John, before the break, we were deep into this conversation about Ukraine. And it occurs to me that this... PSYOP is happening and the PSYOP that is happening now is possible because it's packaged into kind of like three neat pieces of cargo. You know, I kind of thought in my mind of like three suitcases, right? And in the top suitcase, you know, corporate media is able to create this narrative of omission of key facts leading up to and during the war. In the second suitcase, there are key facts of recent history that are omitted And then those two suitcases are sitting atop this big trunk, right, of what our friend Danny Haifong calls American exceptionalism and American innocence. And that allows the United States to forget all of its own centuries-long history of invasions, regime change, assassinations, mass murder of civilians with nuclear bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, you know, and mass genocide inside its own borders, right? And I want to get to that luggage and go through some of those suitcases, right? So in the, in the first suitcase, I recognize that Biden and the corporate media are very keen to say all this week that the war is unprovoked, 
right? <laughs> and so when they say that word, they can ignore the 2014 U.S.-backed coup in Ukraine that, you know, eliminated the democratically elected government. That's right. And then that, and that since 2014, you know, 14,000 people have been killed in eastern Ukraine by the Kiev government, you know, killing their own people. And 80% right. of these deaths were in the Donbass region. These, you know, self-declared uh, independent republics that Russia just uh, recognized. And what has been going on in the Donbass, people have considered genocide. And there's a lot of calls within Russia to address this and to uh, do something to assist our brothers and sisters, you know, our family members in the Donbass, you know, right. or other Russian people. Right. All right. And so for that eight years, while Kiev is attacking its own people, they are refusing to implement something called the Minsk Accords, right. which would basically provide autonomy for that region because basically they had lost this, this civil war that broke out. Right. And the Minsk Accords were basically a way to have peace. They were peace accords and Kiev hasn't implemented them. So they, right. instead of having the peace, they wanted to carry on this war, this civil war, and continue to shell and kill the people in eastern Ukraine. Okay, and then right. starting last year, you saw, this is when I first saw security guarantees given to NATO and the U.S., that they that they wanted uh, negotiations on that they and and you know then you heard Anthony Blinken come on you know the Sunday shows and you know oh we don't we're not you know this is off the table all their security guarantees were dismissed basically they didn't want Ukraine to become a a part of NATO and they didn't want any advanced weapons to continue to be put into to Ukraine as they have been in recent years by the U.S. and NATO. Okay, uh, twenty thousand NATO troops were in uh, Ukraine last year doing exercises. So basically, Ukraine, even though it hasn't been officially admitted into NATO, it's been made this kind of NATO associate or something. A, a kind of and NATO novitiate, yeah. <laughs> the, the de facto, it's a de facto right. uh, part of NATO. So they didn't want that, and so it was. It's kind of like as I've been thinking about this, I kept thinking about the old the, the hip hop line. You know, you can deal with this or you can deal with that. <laughs> so so it was kind of like they were saying with the the first part of the this the attempt at with these negotiations is that we want you to deal with this. We want you to recognize that we have security guarantees that we need security guarantees on our border just like you have them on your border. You know, we're not putting right. missiles at the Canadian border. We're not putting missiles on the Mexico border. But anyway, this was shot down in recent months that led us to this point. So that's all in this in this first suitcase. And then the last thing I would say that I think is important, a, lo a lot of other people are just dismissing it. But the last thing that happened before this invasion began is that Zelensky said that he wanted to um, leave the agreements from the uh, drawn up in Budapest, which, and he wanted to, uh, the U Ukraine to be able to have nuclear weapons. And I am sure that, you know, he's listening to his, his, his masters in the CIA or whatever, right. who, who are telling him what to say. But to me, I think that was the final straw. Other people are saying that, you no, know, it's just provided a talking point for Russia. But I believe that that was the final straw. And on Thursday, I saw 
uh, a report, you know, coming from Russia media saying that Russian intelligence chief says Intel showed Ukraine was working on nukes and that the U.S. knew about it. So I think that there's more to come out about this story. But again, I would put that in our first suitcase of information that you're not hearing on corporate media. Right. You're not hearing right. this this lead up to this war starting not last week, not a few months ago, but back in 2014 and even before that in 2008. But we'll put that in the second suitcase. But what do you what are your thoughts on those things? No, I agree completely. I, I think I, I'm not sure how many suitcases we'll end up with. We we may have like a, a, a we we might be traveling pretty heavy here before we're, we're done, but I, I certainly agree. I would, I would, uh, one thing that I have not heard mentioned in the uh, more trustworthy uh, uh, news mediums, um, uh, Richard Methurst, I think is very good. One source I think is very good. But one thing I haven't heard is to take this all the way back, right? So we have this kind of intermediate uh, 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 time frame uh, starting in maybe 2014, when the United States State Department, uh, led by Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Newland, goes in to uh, uh, reject, uh, to uh, overthrow the democratically elected government of Ukraine. Uh, right before that, what triggered that action is uh, the United States, or actually the IMF, International Monetary Fund, had offered a loan at, of course, loan shocking rates. That's what they do. Very high interest loan to Ukraine right, to help them out of some financial difficulties. And Russia at the last minute swooped in to the rescue. Putin, I think it was Putin was still president at that time, swooped in and and, and gave uh, Ukraine a bailout um, uh, instead. And the United States was particularly upset about that because this is what, what is never said. That's how the United States makes money now. It's, uh, it's on loans and war. Right. That's how the United States makes its money. We don't make anything of value. And so I think that's very important for people to understand. They wanted to indebt Ukraine. Russia understood that, particularly because Russia understands the United States. Th think about this. No one in the world understands better than Putin what an empire looks like when it's collapsing. So he understands, particularly since Libya. Libya, when uh, NATO. Uh, uh, organized a free fly zone, used a free fly zone, a no fly zone, to basically overthrow the most prosperous country in Libya. And so Putin has been preparing for this ever since Libya, at least. You could argue before that even, but certainly since Libya, he's understood their end game is basically dispossession through war and through, you know, these loan sharking loans. Um, and so uh, you know that's very important. Just to keep in mind, this is there's a context here. That's what the United. States, that's what the media doesn't doesn't tell you the context for all of this. But anyway, I think your your description was very apt. And uh, continue. Okay. Well, you know, I think we have video of that infamous call by Victoria Newland uh, during the uh, Obama administration under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, uh, basically, you know, uh, saying that they had someone picked out uh, to be the head of Ukraine after they finished this coup. So, you know, that's something that Russia also points out that most Americans don't know about. But just real quickly, I would say that that second suitcase, I'm just going to keep it at three. <laughs> the second suitcase has three decades of NATO expansion to Russia's border. 
and breaking assurances by several Western leaders, not just under Clinton, the Clinton administration, but several Western leaders said that uh, NATO would not expand one inch to the east in order to get Russia to agree to the reunification of Germany and to bring down the Berlin Wall. You know, that's such a iconic thing now that, you know, that the West had won, you know, it was the end of history, you know, the and then especially when the Soviet Union was um, basically disbanded illegally. But anyway, I want to say that um, the U.S. diplomat George Keenan predicted back then that this expansion east would lead to war. Even Biden's CIA director, uh, William J. Burns, warned the same thing back in 1995. He was based in Moscow at the time. He was a political officer in the U.S. embassy. And he said, quote, hostility to early NATO expansion is almost universally felt across the domestic political spectrum here, end quote. And then that brings us up to 2007 and 2008, when I think Putin made his remarks, basically said this expansion is basically leading to war, which brings us up to today, that their continued outreach and attempts to denounce this expansion, all these calls were basically just dismissed. And then I guess we don't really have to get into the whole trunk of of U.S. imperialism that these two suitcases are are sitting on. The American people, we don't even have the benefit of having facts on the air. And I'm sure that you're just like me and you came into journalism to deliver people the facts and to not get caught up in this kind of war. It's hysteria, but that's what we're left with right now. What you described, the the old order dying and the new one being born. And and Russia and China especially are very much a part of that. And so their task is to demonize Russia and China uh, and uh, use their power that they have remaining in corporate media to do that. But, John, we have to go. Do you have any final words? No, I think we said it all. Okay, well... I want to thank um, our media critic, John Jeter, for joining me for this uh, month's episode of On the Media. And I'm sure that we will be actually talking again before the end of the month. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to keep our eye out for all things that are in the press. Thank you, John. Thank you, Esther. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On the Ground Show. We will also link to part two of our interview today with John Jeter on our website and Patreon page under today's show. Our new podcast on the ground with Esther Averam is on all your podcast platforms. The new podcast, social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says on the ground. The music we played this hour included Crush on You, instrumental by Lil' Kim, All Right by Kendrick Lamar, remixed by DJ Floyd, Waheed Aaron, Work for Peace by Gil Scott Heron, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace.
On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. If you have not already subscribed at Patreon, you can do so for as little as $3 a month or all at once at $33 for the whole year. And I know that the show is worth more than that to you. If you like the show, if you love the show, if you regularly check it out, if you rely on it, if, you know, it's a part of your soundtrack in any kind of way, please support. Go to patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And I would very much appreciate your support. And it would mean so much to us at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can go to the show website, which you might go to anyway, if you reach the blog that way and you click on the donate now button or the, um, support donate button and you can see all ways to give.